Do it again. Of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world. You're listening to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling. A martini, shaken, not stirred. Don't try and church it up, son. You can't handle the truth. I am the picture that got small. Your first one's on us. Gentlemen, welcome to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling. I'm your host, Mark Rigadon, and with me as always... Richie Byrne. And your producer, Soul Joel. Today, we have special a very guest. special guest. I know we say that a lot, but we really this do This is a special guest? This is a special how guest. Many, how many books? Two? Five. Five. Wow. wow. <laughs> you way overshot my thought. A I know of two. Yeah, I, I know of two. I had to apologize because I thought we were talking about his book. And then and he goes, no, we're going to talk about my most Magic. recent book, which is hot right now, about your healing and meditation. Yeah, it just became a bestseller on Amazon. But am I allowed to talk before you introduce me? <laughs> 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 That's what he sounds like. <laughs> Jeffrey Gurian. Jeffrey Gurian. Hey, thank you, guys. Mainstay in the thank New York you Comedy for coming scene. It's so cool to be here with no, you guys. You're a staple of the entire comedy scene. A staple. Scene. That's an unusual, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> Out it's of a true. stapler. You're no, part it's true. Of that's all nice. Of it. Thank you. You're thank part you. of all of it, it, man. And uh, we're here live at the comic strip, which, ironically, you have a book. About the comic strip. Isn't that a small strip. world that I should happen to have a book about the comic strip? <laughs> it, was a labor, it was a labor of love that took four years to do. Wow. Years. It was a tremendous amount of work. Yeah, because we interviewed. Now, what is the book? Tell us a little well, about it. Well, the newest version is called Laughing Legends, and it's called How the Comic Strip Changed the Face of Comedy. Oh, man. And that's, a, that's a deep subject. Yeah, well, you know, it was the it third comedy club ever in existence, Bud Friedman opened the improv in 1963, and he opened it as a coffee shop. It wasn't a, right. co it wasn't a comedy club for a while. You had singers would come in and Jazz Broadway singers, actors. Opera and singers. People would hang yeah. out, you know, and Danny Aiello was the bouncer, which is I how, heard stories which is how he that. got so connected to the comedy world, you know, and wound up with his own club out in New Jersey for a while. But um, Oof. it wasn't Oof. until the end... It wasn't until the end of 1972 that Rick Newman opened Catch a Rising Star. And then on June 1st of 76, Richie Tinkin and his partners opened this club where we're sitting right now, which is the only club of the three originals that is still open to this wow. day. So, so uh, now when this opened, uh, it, it was in New York City, obviously. We're mm -hmm. in New York City. But then what inspired the clubs of, like, Los Angeles and Vegas, like they were more nightclubs, right? Yeah, well, but it, so like were, so was the improv here. I mean, in the beginning, right? Yeah, it was, was a coffee it even, shop. Basically. What was Catch? Was Catch? Was Catch? Catch, catch a, was a comedy it, club it was from the beginning. Primarily, okay, yeah. okay. And I didn't know if that was the reason that Richie opened the strip was because he had a bartender who wanted to do impressions, whose name is escaping me for the moment, but he's in this book. You have to get the book to find out the name. At, at, right, and he went to audition at Catch one night, and when Richie came down to support him with a whole bunch of people, they were amazed to see lines around the block. I remember when Catch opened, it was crazy, yeah. because there weren't comedy clubs. There was yeah. this one club, the Improv, lines around the block, and Richie started coming down there every night, and he saw every night there was lines around the block, and he figured there's probably room for another club. And he had never, you know, he was a bar owner from the Bronx. He owned five bars. You. <laughs> he will tell you for sure, you know. And so Multiple times. It was a real leap of faith, you know, and he hooked up with uh, John McGowan and, and Bob Wax, and they opened this. They found this club while they were riding in a taxi on the way to meet with Bob Wax. 
um, Richie looked out the window and he's like, what location do you want? And they saw this empty bar here and they told the cab to pull over and they looked in the window and this is the club that wow. became the comic strip. Wow. Like, wow. Yeah. Man, that's cool serious? Yeah. yeah. Just told the cab to pull over. That's synchronicity. They were in the cab. You know, that cab block. driver wants a percentage. Wow. Yeah. Probably. Probably. <laughs> so, so the club always fascinated me. I was here in the very early days, you know. It opened on June 1st. The June 17th, Jerry Seinfeld came in to audition. And his. And this is 76. Yeah, yeah. Okay. June 17th wow. of 1976. And his sign up sheet is in the book here, a copy of it, of course. Uh, in those days when you come original. in. It's the original. Buy the book. <laughs> in those days when you come in to audition, they would rate you. You would audition for one of the owners. Like George Wallace auditioned before the club was even open. Huh. While it was still under construction, wow. He, wow. he was selling advertising. Because George oh was always God. very successful, and he sold them advertising. When the club opened, every bus on First and Second Avenue had a sign on the back, eat, drink, and laugh at the comic strip. And when we did the documentary film on the strip, that's the title of it, eat, drink, and laugh, because that was the original logo of the club. And did George come up with that? Or was yeah. That Look at that. That's great wow. to know that. And Seinfeld's sign-up sheet says, this guy's going nowhere. He talks about nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It actually said good. They rated him good, good and said, let him come back on Monday. He came in, I guess, <laughs> on a Friday to audition. And he became the— Usually it's the other way around. You come usually, in on a Monday. Usually. Yeah. But he, he became the, the earliest MC. Like, in the shortest amount of time, he became an MC at the club. And then quit his. Wow. He wow. had he had one job before that, and then never did anything but comedy again, because <laughs> he said he was making like forty five dollars a week, which was huge in those days. <laughs> and, uh, and he was he was he. Funny enough, that's what I'm still making. <laughs> he roomed with George Wallace. They were roommates, wow. and they're best friends yeah, to this they day. Still are, yeah. I actually came with George when Jerry filmed his recent Netflix special here. At, oh the, really? comic at, the, comic strip. at the comic strip. I came with George to watch. They yeah, remade it, it to look like the like old Like it days. did in 1976. I was, yeah. was going to say, the comic strip is still staying relevant even after your book was published. Right. <laughs> so cause so did, uh, Sandler just filmed it here as well. Yeah, I was there for that, too. It was amazing. It was well, like a secret. We're it's not a real bummed. show if Jeffrey's not there. And, uh, seriously. Well, that's kind of the No, it's the truth. It's the truth. Yeah. The man, so. uh, we were actually supposed to be here recording the night Sandler did his That's right. special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got bumped. We by got Adam bumped. Yeah. Un understandably. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and, and it was a very interesting special. He only did that one taping for two hours. Most people come in and they'll do two tapings, right. like an hour apiece. He spent two hours on stage. He had his own keyboardist. <laughs> and he sang songs and told jokes. And it, it was amazing watching That's him do great. this. But I was always fascinated by this club. So. When, when, I, when I had the idea for the book, I presented it. I was here with Gilbert Gottfried, and we were coaching Ann Curry on how to do stand-up comedy. I don't remember what the, what the, the thing was, but she, she had to do comedy for something <laughs> on the news. And so we were coaching her, and then I'm standing there with Richie, and I'm looking at the walls and the history of this club, and I'm like, did anybody ever do a book on this club? And he's like, no. And I said, well, I would like to do that. And so he said, well, we'll talk about it. So he came to my house. And he saw that I had more pictures on my wall, he said, than he has at the club. <laughs> yes. Oh, really? Which that, if if that no one's back. been to the comic strip. There's a lot of pictures on the walls here. So. It's covered. 200 at least. Yeah, I, yeah, I have more than that. I have pictures that go back 30 years. You know, Milton Berle was my sponsor in the Friars Club. 
Wow. So I have I have oh, pictures. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. I you actually, know, I think you told me that once. I forgot about it. Imagine the that. Truth. I have pictures with Milton back in 1985 Do you have any pictures of his proof? <laughs> that he's, uh... Oh, he showed it to me one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he did. And not because I asked to see it he either. Sh- he so said, look. Just and he showed him just enough to impress him. Yeah, yeah, we happened to be in the men's room of the L.A. Friars. At the time, there was a Friars Club in Los Angeles, and he was the president. And so we w- happened to be in the men's room, and he goes, Jeff, you want to see something? And before I had a chance Which to say no, <laughs> it, it went was around out. your shoulder. <laughs> it was Are you serious? I thought a fucking python got loose. Dude. It was crazy. <laughs> but that's so cool. It was cool. ridiculous. He just whipped <laughs> it out. Excited. I was like, no, yeah, because Milton Berle's dick is famous. Like, it it's, is. It's it famous. Is. And well, did you I, get it to autograph? That's how I got to meet him, by the way. Listen to this. I got to meet him. I was writing Before you jokes. know it, you're a member of the Friars. <laughs> I was writing jokes for the Friars Roast for years. For like 12 years, I was the head writer oh my under God. a guy named Bob Sachs, who was the producer of yeah. Bob Sachs, sure. the, the Roast. And uh, I wrote this joke. I said, if uh, uh, Burl's cock had a blonde wig, it could pass for Paul Williams. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, oh, my God. When Burl heard the joke, he started using that. He said, I want to meet the guy who wrote that joke. He called it the Burl's cock joke. And Dick Capri did the joke. I don't know if you know Dick. Probably a name. I just saw Dick in Florida a couple of weeks ago. He's the first comedian that I ever wrote Dick Capri. Wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. Still out there doing it. He was in Catskills on Broadway. Yeah. And and he's just a fantastic comedian. And so he brought me over to meet Milton. And we became friends. And I wrote a lot of jokes about his schlong. You know, it was like... uh, what well, I, I, Jeffrey, the first for all people at home, did, I am blushing right now. The first book that I ever did was called Filthy, Funny, and Totally Offensive in 2007. I was asked to do a book about celebrities' favorite dirty jokes oh because, my of, God, my, that's because a of my history. Subject. So 250 celebrities, Jason Alexander and Joan Rivers. Which one of the dirtiest ones? Oh, geez, I can't even say them. And I don't remember all of them because there was uh, there hundreds. There was huge. He, it was just well, so amazing. Was milk. But... One of the jokes, the first page and the last page were my jokes. And I, Paul Provenza wrote the introduction for ah, me. Yeah, Paul. Right? right, of course. And so we were going over the material, and I was telling him the jokes, and I said to him, you know, uh, Burl would have loved to be here today, but he had a little accident in his hotel room. He was fucking this chick, and on his way over to the bed, he accidentally tripped and pole vaulted out the window. <laughs> and so... <laughs> But before I could finish the joke, Provenza interrupted me, and he goes, pole vo- you wrote the pole vaulting joke? And I'm like, you know that joke? He goes, that's a fucking classic joke. You Everybody knows that joke. the pole vaulting joke. joke. We he, got our joke for the episode. Yeah, there he, it is. He, he, knew the, he knew joke. the joke, the pole vaulting joke. The yeah. Paul Williams joke. And before so the show, we said, do you have a joke I know, and he us. said, oh, I wish you guys uh, would have let me know ahead I of time. I would have prepared. Now let me unleash two legends <laughs> that I wrote. <laughs> In later years, I, I'm friendly with Paul Williams, and I could never tell him that story. <laughs> well, I was afraid guess what? He, he listens to out. the podcast. Yeah, he probably does. <laughs> he's the president of ASCAP. He's such a he's such a wonderful guy. That's right, but he is. Just like, yeah, yeah, he's the president of ASCAP. Yeah, so, uh, so that was he, the story. So and I, he does side work as Milton Burrow's cock. <laughs> now, <laughs> when you... <laughs> we interviewed everybody for this book, and they all came into the club, except Billy Crystal... Did we do something no, wrong? No, the lights the went out. Oh, yeah? They heard I, the last joke. They said, that, that, you guys are it, done. Right? No, I interviewed Billy Crystal. Everybody came here except for Billy Crystal. Yeah, who I interviewed in Beverly Hills in his office. We couldn't ask Billy to fly in. So I was out there, and I went to see him. 
And it's not a bad trip. No, it Go was, to Beverly it was Hills to see to Billy see Crystal. It was amazing. And there's pictures in the book of he and I. Well, I don't know if you know, but I used to be a dentist. and I did not yeah, know. I did. Yeah, and, and Billy knew because he was managed by Jack Rollins. And when I met Billy back in the 70s, Jack Rollins had wanted to do a sitcom based on my story about a dentist who was in show business, and he wanted Billy to play me. And that's how no I way. that's how I first met Billy and Robin Williams. Wow. Because I was a kid, like, and I was going up to Jack Rollins' office all the time. Jack left us recently at 100 years old. Wow. He passed away about two years ago. I, I heard think. some really great stories about him that, like, he paid money out of his own pocket to get tires for Billy Crystal. Oh, he was the nicest guy in the world. Such an unusual... An old-time show business character that there'll never be another uh. kind. Just, just a wonderful human being, and he was so nice to me. And I also got to meet uh, Charlie Jaffe, his partner. You know, every Woody Allen movie at the end says Charles Jaffe. Yeah, it sure. says Rollins and Jaffe. Rollins and production. Jaffe. Yeah. yeah. So I never thought I'd even know those guys. Woody Allen read my earliest material. It was crazy. Really? Yeah. But. Um, See, I have so many stories. I, I, I confuse myself. There was, <laughs> there was a particular story that I wanted to tell you about. Uh, well, you said everybody came here except for Billy Crystal. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that's right. So You know what's bad when I'm remembering. No, no, no. That's <laughs> when, great. When Richie's the is voice like of reason, <laughs> we're in <laughs> trouble. But who was the other? Who didn't come here? There's a picture in the book of me and Billy, and he's pointing to his teeth. Because oh, really? he remembered, he remembered that. Yeah, no, but he remembered in the middle of our interview. I'm doing the interview. And we're talking about the early days, and all of a sudden he goes to me, oh, my God, you're, th you're the funny dentist, right? And I'm like, I hate that reference. But he goes, Alan King used to call you that because I the knew funny Alan, dentist. the funny dentist. From then, I, I said, I hate that reference because I never so wanted to. So if we're on a show, can I call you that? No, never. No, no. You, don't, you don't want your worlds colliding. Yeah, I never did. When I wrote for Joan Rivers, she didn't find out till months later. So her assistant saw something about me on television, and Joan called me from Las Vegas early in the morning, and I was still in practice, and my nurse had strict instructions, never interrupt me unless it's for show business. So she would come in. <laughs> of That's course. Of course. Terrible. Hey. So she would come in and Your she'd entire say like, family died in a plane wreck. <laughs> what did I say? I said, leave me alone. Were they right. on stage? Right. Joan Rivers has a compliment for you. I'll take the call. <laughs> right. So she would call up and she'd say, Dr. Rivers is on the phone. Dr. Burl is calling. The only one that no one believed was Dr. Dangerfield. I was going to say. <laughs> that was, she couldn't guy. get away with that, right? So so Joan calls. Dr. Vinnie like, Bubatz. <laughs> exactly. And I wrote some of those for him, too. For so. Real? Yeah, he oh. was the he was the first big star I ever wrote for. Oh Rodney. my God! After writing for these other guys, that's how I met Rodney, and I started writing stuff. And he did it on the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and uh, on uh, on his first album, No Respect. Mm -hmm. He did a very politically incorrect joke of mine on his album, No Respect. He goes, you know, I only get ugly girls. He goes, I. I met one girl. She was so ugly. I bent down to pet her cat. It was the hair on her legs. She was a very <laughs> ugly girl. <laughs> and, and he did. Oh, he did so many of my jokes, and it was such a thrill to write for Rodney. And he oh. pay you fifty bucks. Is yes, that true? Yes. Yeah. I, I used to get. Bucks. I used to get checks in the mail from him. He was so honest. He was honest. He was yeah. Honest. He'd pay anybody who wrote him a joke, and he remember the he, joke. And he, he appreciated paid. it so much. But it was I still have <laughs> copies. I still have copies of those. Yeah. In in the days when people paid five dollars a joke. He paid 50. See? What a class. There you go. Wow. Yeah. And he once paid me $250 for a joke that he used as an opener with Carson 
Uh, and again, a very simple joke, you know. And I can't do a Rodney impression, but it was, you know, he had a stock. Opening. Everyone can you do know, a little like, bit you know, of I'm a Rodney. I'm all right now, but last week was rough. You know, he <laughs> says, "I uh, I bought one of those whirlpools for my bathtub. The first night I used it, I lost three of my best shifts." <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he, he liked that joke so much because for TV, you had to be clean in those days, right? Yeah. Because that's such a perfect, clean joke. And he used that as his opening with Carson. Oh, my God. And he paid me $250 for it. So, and wait, like, joke tally. What are we up to now? A lot. Yeah. We for got a guy a who said, oh, you so should have. I don't have any <laughs> jokes. <laughs> no, because I think you said a street joke. These were jokes that people, you know, did on stage. Like yeah, on television, they're still you know? jokes. They're still they're jokes. Yeah, they still qualify as jokes. And ev- so. So they all came in here, Jim Gaffigan, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, and we all sat down. As a matter of fact, when Jim came in, I don't think Richie was free that day, but on the others, it was me, Richie, and Jerry, and me, Richie, and Chris Rock, and it was just very relaxed, and they stayed, and they talked for at least an hour. Wow. And you know who's in the... To get there that time from those people. Yeah. that's no. why it took names. four if you years. Want an hour, if you want an hour of like Chris Rock, like you have to give him like 50 I mean, look, grand. look at this. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> Chris Rock, Jerry Seinfeld, Billy Crystal, Ray Romano, Paul Reiser, Gilbert, Susie Essman, Colin Quinn, Paul Provenza, Provenza. Uh, Gaffigan, Martling, Wayne Fetterman. Wayne oh, Fetterman. Wow. Wayne Fetterman. Uh, Sherrod, Lewis Black, Judah. How about Wayne Carter. You guys remember Wayne I Cotter? I remember he Wayne hosted Cotter. Wayne Cotter was very The Thomas Strip Live, which was a very You don't remember Wayne Cotter? Not by face. He was I big. He John Mulroney hosted the, the Comic Strip Live That's TV right. show, which was not related to the club, right? No, no, no. It, it wasn't related to the club. I just remembered that when I started the book, it was at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal. And my first three interviews were George Wallace, Larry Miller. I love Wow. Who was love up there. Larry Miller. He's and in my top three. And Paul Provenza. Yeah, and that's what kicked off the book. And that I didn't want to present it to a publisher until I had all the interviews because when you're dealing with such big stars, there's no guarantee that you're going to get everybody. And I didn't want to promise a publisher something until yeah, I had it yeah. in my hands. So yeah. I basically almost finished the book before we went to a publisher. But oh, it was Smart, though. That's smart. It was ama- yeah, because I... But I'm smart. I had, a, I had a feeling that we could get all these names, but it was amazing to sit with them. Yeah, it must have been. For at least an hour at a time and talking about, you know, just their the history beginnings. and how they got started and, you know, it's what great we want to do here. Did yeah. you know that Ray Romano got started under the name Jackie Roberts? Do you know no. that story? No. No. Yeah. Well, in the early days, it, there was just the improv, and if you wanted to perform at the improv, there was a lottery, and you'd go and you put your name in a hat. And they would pick you if they picked your name out of the hat, you'd get to go up on stage. So Ray was going in and he wanted to double his chances. So he brought a friend with him. That cheater. But he couldn't find a guy, so he brought a girl. So he says to the girl, Listen, I can't go up under a wait, girl's wait, name. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. So he could not find a, f- a male comedian. Male friend. No, so friend. he needed but a female to do it. Exactly. I, the, I'm calling bullshit on diversity. All the diversity. <laughs> well, now this was a long time ago. There was no diversity, right? It was so fun. So, he, so he asked this girl, and he tells her, "You have to pick an androgynous name because I can't go up under a girl's name." So she picks the name Jackie Roberts. Silver Friedman's there. They're picking names out of the hat, and they pick his name. Of course, Jackie Roberts goes up on stage, kills, passes the audition, 
And now he has to go on stage as Jackie okay, Roberts because he can't hysterical. He can't tell the owner that he lied about his name. Okay, but there's one problem. What if they picked Jackie Roberts and Ray Romano? Oh, he and didn't he put in his own name. Oh, wait a minute. No, he, he had to because he wanted name. to double his chances. And he wanted to, that's right. So <laughs> I guess they didn't pick Ray Romano. They didn't pick Ray well, Romano. Well, he went up as Ray. Didn't only, do well. And they only picked J Jackie Roberts. Oh, my and God. So, I so want to so run into Ray Romano and ask him about this. For the first two, it's in the book. The story's there. Straight from Ray Romano. So he went up as Jackie Roberts, and then he bombed one night. He said in the beginning he had beginner's luck, and he was doing yeah. great. And then <laughs> all of a sudden one night he bombed terribly, and he lost his courage. And he didn't go back on stage for two years. He went back to selling futons. Yes, selling he futons. Was, sure. That was his best friend's job. Yeah. That's why on Everybody Loves Raymond, that was one of the That's how he met his wife episodes. on Everybody Loves Raymond. I think he futons. did it in real life, too. He actually sold the futon to Larry David. Yeah. And Larry David didn't like it. Yeah. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> he, no. wasn't he wasn't happy with it. And he made him return it. Yeah. He said Isn't that he interesting, though, that like he did well in the beginning, and then when he bombed, he quit. He quit, but he but when he came back, he came back as Ray Romano. When he came back to this <laughs> club, so wait a minute, Jackie Roberts sucked. Ray Romano was great. Was great, and he <laughs> came Romano back to this club, <laughs> and this is where he met Roy Rosegarten, who's his manager his to manager this, this day. day yeah. To yeah. this Roy. day, shout yeah. out to Rory. One of the, one shout of the out to Rory. Loyal show business stories. I just spoke to Rory recently, and he's got the same people. The Regan brothers yeah. are still with him. Yeah. Robert Klein is he, still with him. He, he's had the same th that same crew for thirty. Right. Brian Regan, yeah, and and, wow. uh, and Dennis. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Like and Robert Klein is still with him. He like, he was his first client, Robert Klein. Really? I, yeah. Yeah. Robert Klein yeah. changed comedy. He yes, he did. Like the There's guy. a whole book about it. He and it. David Brenner were the first people to do observational comedy. Yeah. Have you ever noticed? Before that, it was jokes. People yeah. wrote jokes. When I was coming up, Catskilly. You had to learn how to write a premise and then build jokes around it. Comics would call it a hunk. I don't think they use that term anymore. No. Comics would say, like, write me a hunk of material. Yeah, a hunk. Yeah, and I like I used to write pounds of jokes, they would say. <laughs> for Rodney, you had to give him pounds of jokes for him to take even one. Yeah. And I would say to Rodney, Rodney, look at all the jokes I wrote you. And he goes, yeah, Jeff, but they got to be funny, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, that's like Judd Apatow on that uh, Gary Shandling. Oh my God! Uh, did you I see didn't it? see it yet, but I it's heard it's very fantastic. good, phenomenal. But it's Apatow, right up your alley. You would love it. You would book. love it. Apatow tells I, I a story about it. when uh, Shanling was hosting the Emmys. Apatow wrote thirty jokes, and he gave them to Shanling, and he said he used every joke. But he only used the premise. He rewrote the punchline, <laughs> and they were all funnier than what I wrote. <laughs> That's hysterical. Those are great yeah. stories. Yeah, Those yeah, are great yeah. stories. I used to sit with Rodney, and he would wear a bathrobe and pajamas. Of course, he uh, not a nice it. bathrobe, but just no. a bathrobe and pajamas. And he would say to me uh, stuff like, "Hey Jeff, what's the difference between Jews and Italians?" And I'm like, "I don't know, Rodney. What's the difference?" He goes, "They both take a leak in the sink, but the Jews take the dishes out first. <laughs> ah, oh, another great joke. Oh, God. <laughs> And I was, like, amazed. I'm like a kid. I'm sitting there with Rodney, and he's telling me these jokes. And it was, like, the most exciting time for me. Man. It was just incredible. That Absolutely to me incredible. Like when I'm happiest uh, was when I was working at Stand Up New York, and I was just a puppy. And all the, the older comics would come in, and they would, you know, hey, what do you think of this? And what do you think? And they would just want to, like talk shop with you. Then once they found out that I was doing comedy, they didn't want they to didn't talk want to shop anymore. anymore. Yeah. Nobody wanted to be my pal. Oh, that's <laughs> you know? yeah. did, did it mean something to you that Jerry came back and did that special before there was Jerry? 
Yeah, well, it was a big surprise, actually. It was very hard to get Jerry to come in. His schedule was so crazy. Even when they wanted to come in, it literally took months to schedule them. And when he came in, he couldn't have been nicer. He, he was like, it was amazing. He came in ready to talk and reminisce and so friendly. And, uh, but he didn't do the documentary film that we were doing. And so we hadn't seen him for a long time. So it was a wonderful thing that he decided to come back and be loyal to the club where he started. He spent four years here. From 1976 to 1980, this was his home club. Richie gave him hamburgers. He wore his jacket very proudly. You know, when we interviewed Alan Combs, who unfortunately passed away Alan Combs, not too wow, long yeah, ago, yeah. Alan Combs came to the interview wearing his original comic strip jacket. <laughs> really? That, that looked like it just came out of the closet. Yeah, it was oh uh, so perfect. God. He was so, and he literally shed tears. He was crying during the interview because he said that this was the first club that ever gave comedians a schedule. The other clubs, you'd have to come and sit sometimes for hours hoping to get on stage. They wouldn't give you a schedule. And if anyone better known than you came in, you would get bumped and you'd have to right. just sit there. But this club actually gave people a schedule. And, you know, so many people thought that Lucian owned the club because... Yeah. When yeah. Richie was with Eddie Murphy, he was out right. in L.A. for years. My, the years I came here, I never met Richie. And so no Lucian ran the club for 25 years, right. and everyone yeah. thought that he was actually the owner of the club. Richie didn't mind. He was actually the carpenter. He actually built, physically built the club. Who did? Lucian. Lucian? He thought he was a Broadway dancer and a carpenter. So no does way. that mean Seamus is going to be the <laughs> next guy? <laughs> if, you, if, if you look on the walls outside, on these wooden walls, you'll see notches in the walls. Yes. Lucian made those all over the club. He took a, like an awl or something, and he made these marks in the wall. When the club was finished being built, Richie said to him, so what are you going to do now? He said, I'm going to try to get a job as a dancer again. And Richie said to him, well, why don't you stay and be a bartender? And he said, well, I don't know how to be a bartender. And Richie said, well, if someone asks for <laughs> a beer. You built a goddamn club. <laughs> if <laughs> someone asks for a beer, day. you give him a beer. Now you're a bartender. So he stayed to learn to be a bartender, and he did that for a long time. And then Richie was booking wow. the club. I wish I knew this back in the day. This is interesting. Isn't it? <laughs> I love these stories. Richie was booking the club from L.A. originally, and then he would, he would call Lucian on the phone, and that's how he taught him how to book the club. And then, because he realized he couldn't do it effectively from Los Angeles, that he was—he had an office on the Paramount yeah. lot with Eddie, and then he taught Lucian how to book the club. Which we shouldn't skim over that. No, did Eddie, Eddie come in? Did Eddie come in? No, he was going to do a phoner with me, but I didn't do any phoners with anybody. I—I—I I just had this feeling. Eddie didn't it's not personal. Eddie, Eddie Murphy. This is the didn't whole reason he had a career. Eddie Murphy. Yeah, this is the place, yeah, he, he man. He said. Uh, the story that I heard, we met with his representatives. He didn't. He said that he didn't like to talk about his past. Um, he just wasn't able to make it. And he did say that he would talk to me on the phone, as I said. But I just didn't feel like a phone conversation would be the same thing. There's, there's something about sitting with I somebody agree. in person. I agree with The energy is different. Yeah, a phone yeah. conversation is very impersonal. It's not... You know, I can't because and so, the so it was unfortunate. There's a famous story about Eddie showing up here with an attitude. In a dashiki. <laughs> yeah, got on that stage night, and yeah. they, they kicked him out. Or they, he, well, he didn't no, get he on didn't stage. Did, he, no, he did get on demanding stage. Demanding to go on or something? No, he came in and he wanted Richie to see how he was doing. And he was dressed in an African dashiki. And he went up on stage 
And Richie wasn't particularly impressed with what he did. Right. And it was an awkward moment because he came off and he expected Richie to tell him that he did great. But Richie was loyal to him in all those years. He stood up for him even after uh, Eddie fired him. You know, uh, at, at Eddie's dad's funeral, I think, Richie protected him from the press because the press was all there and they wanted to get close to him and talk to him and Richie didn't feel that it was proper. And he protected him and he made sure that they didn't get to see him. And he did a, a lot of things like that. That's like, cool. Because he felt like he was Eddie's dad. I mean, when Eddie was looking for a manager, a lot of people had approached him to manage him. And he said that he didn't trust the black managers that came to him. He didn't really trust anybody. And Especially King Broder. Well, and <laughs> Eddie's mother said to him, who do you trust most in the world? And he said, Richie. So when he asked Richie at first, R Richie turned him down because he's like, I don't know how to manage anybody. Right. He, he didn't want the responsibility of managing anybody, someone's really, life, yeah. someone's life. And Eddie already had stuff going on. But after Eddie talked about it with his mom, he came back to Richie again, and he said, I really want you to manage me. And Richie thought about it, and he agreed to do it. And he said right away he was dealing with the heavyweights in show business. Oh because my God. I mean, it happened because overnight. He said, yeah. like, with, with no experience, he was dealing with these top executives in film, and he's the one who got Eddie uh, into being a cast member on SNL. He was just a, a featured player at first. But Joe Piscopo was on the show, and he was a big advocate of Eddie's. And one night, the show was running five minutes short. Gene Domanian was the producer. Right. And they needed somebody to stretch, and they asked Joe to do it. And Joe said, why don't you let Eddie do it? Which is so, how cool is that a job? That's awesome. Joe Piscopo. Right. He, gave that, Joe he Piscopo. gave that to Eddie, and Eddie was concerned. He called Richie. He goes, Rich, they, they want me to do five minutes, but I curse. And Richie said, well, then don't curse. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good manager right uh, there. Brilliant. <laughs> and from what Richie told me, he actually did curse, and they bleeped it. And But he saved the show. And so when it came time for contracts, Richie went in and sat down with Jean Domanian, and she said she wanted to renew his contract, but as a featured player. And Richie said, he saved your show. Don't you think you should be a regular cast yeah, member? Yeah, they wouldn't. he wasn't a regular cast Are member. Are you serious? Yeah. Right. And they bumped him up to be a regular cast member, and he said he went from seven fifty a week to three thousand a week. Wow! And that's when Richie started taking his percentage. <laughs> <laughs> Jeffrey, I, I have to say something, I, and I think it's a, a you know, on behalf of you guys, you're you're a perfect example of how not to judge a book by its cover. I don't really know you that well. I know to see you, but I don't think you knew me very well. But I know your reputation and these stories and well, the connections. I, told, I was saying and we got to get your Jeffrey resume. On. I didn't know all these things, yeah. and I, I'm very impressed, and I'm very glad that we made this happen today. Yeah. I mean, well, do it's you amazing. Wanna, can we talk so about much. this really quick? I, I would love to. So oh, I, I wasn't. I wasn't wrapping. It sounded like you were wrapping uh, up. Uh, uh. I, I just wanted to thank him. I mean, that that was no, no. I knew he. I knew he was going to come in. I didn't know he'd come in with this much. Yeah, but I knew he was going to come in and, and, and hit it out. I don't even know what I know. I forget. <laughs> I forget a lot of. No, well, I, I wish I got knew mad what I knew. Yeah, you got mad at us because we, you, you didn't prepare no, a joke. Meanwhile, you rattled off thirty. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> I, no, I wasn't mad. I always like to come in and do a good job. And when I don't know what it's about, I feel like that maybe I won't do as well as I could have done if I had known before. Right. So I didn't well, you're know doing a great job. I didn't know. So well, but I do you. have Thanks. a question. I appreciate. It. Go ahead. What made you get in? a Entertainment. What made you get into comedy? You were you were a dentist when first. When I was twelve years old, I so you were I, always I, I, doing. I was always writing comedy from okay. the time I was a kid. I just grew up in the Bronx, and I never considered it as a potential uh, avenue to work in. I never considered it as a, a career. 
I grew up in a middle-class area in the Bronx. And no one in my family had ever even gone to college. They were all in the garment center and the liquor business. My grandfather owned a nightclub. So when I grew up, and it was a very well-known nightclub in the 40s. It was called the Red Mill. Burl okay. actually knew of it. Wow. And Joey Adams performed there. And a, a, wow, a, a bunch really? of the older comics Joey knew, Adams. knew my grandfather, Herman Kay. So I grew up around show business and gangsters, and that was always my thing. I was always attracted to that. <laughs> so I wanted, I, when I was 12 years old, I decided I wanted to be a dentist. I wanted to be a doctor, but I, I was too sensitive to handle life and death situations. So I figured I liked being Molars a dentist. And I, th I figured the worst that could happen is somebody's nerve will die, but at least the person <laughs> won't die. I could handle a nerve dying, right? So. And I used to think, but, <laughs> but if, if you want to be in show business, how can you also be a dentist? And it used to confuse me. And so I could never decide, and I wound up doing both at the same time. And it was a very difficult thing, to be honest with you. It was a really hard thing to do, but I managed to do it. Cindy Adams said I did it so that I, could, I, that I made people laugh to see if they had any teeth missing. <laughs> <laughs> That was her conclusion. Hey, but I do want to... Really yeah, we will. <laughs> and and we, yeah. we, we have not talked about a drink... But we're going to talk about your book, because you, what, were you, what were you saying about helium? This is a helium? really important book for me. I, I'm very involved in healing and alternative medicine. When I was teaching, I was, uh, I, I was at a major university, and because I told such filthy jokes, I won't say what it was, but it was a major university in New York. Trump and I, university. I, I was a clinical professor in oral medicine and oral facial pain, and my specialty was headache therapy caused by stress from bruxism grinding and clenching your teeth. Oh, really? really? That was my specialty, TMJ problems. I was a cosmetic dentist for many years, and I was, uh, until I was in my 20s, I was a, a very severe stutterer. I stuttered very badly. Really? I couldn't even say my name. Yeah, and I developed a cure for stuttering. I was determined not to go through my life as a stutterer. And it's a, it's a horrible disability, even though people make fun of it and they joke about mm -hmm. it, it's terrible. And so my parents took me for speech therapy, and no one was able to help me. And I realized one day that I didn't stutter when I was alone. I could go into a room by myself and say everything uh, perfectly that I wanted to say. But if I was trying to talk to you, I couldn't do it. And that told me, you can't have a disability based on your location. You know ah. what I mean? If a, <laughs> if, Brilliant. If, if a man has a limp, he limps in every room of his house. You can't go into the room, close the door, and walk perfectly. But if I could speak Joel well does alone, if food in the kitchen. he does, right? <laughs> so I realized that there was really nothing wrong with me. I created it in my head, either through low self-esteem, lack of confidence, pressure, whatever it was, nervousness. So I worked on myself for years, and I developed a cure for stuttering. And I realized that you could change a thought, any thought that you create you can uncreate. Each one of us, everybody in the world, is functioning with thoughts that are not valid. And very often, they're thoughts that work against us. A lot of us create, you know, they're thoughts sometimes that are <coughs> given to us by strangers. If you were bullied as a kid, and most of us were in some way, because mm -hmm. what kid is perfect? We all, ex you know, ex kids are fucking mean, right? And so mm. we're bullied, and we tend to believe what these people are saying about us. And very often, we get negative images of ourselves. And we hold on to that, and I call them heart wounds. Anytime anybody has ever broken a promise to you or hurt your feelings in some way, you keep that inside of you. There's this bullshit saying that they teach us, sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never harm you. 
which is the furthest from the That's truth. Yeah, yeah. Because all the bruises you had when you were a kid healed a long time ago. But every single one of you can remember something that someone said that hurt your feelings yeah. as if it was yesterday. Well, it was for me. Yeah. Rickadonna called me a lesbian. Well, see that? <laughs> see that? And so that's he hasn't a heart, recovered for That's weeks. a heart wound. <laughs> so we carry these it's heart wounds. a truth wounds. wound. We carry these heart wounds with us, and they, they affect our self-esteem and our self-confidence, and they affect every decision that we make. Every time you have to make a decision in your life, you use your thoughts to think about what you should do, right? Who else's thoughts can you use? And if your thoughts are faulty, your decisions are not going to work for you. So I wrote this book. Th this book is a lifetime of work for me and thought. It's called Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, and it's showing us the ability to release the pain that we're holding inside of us and change the way we think because you can change a thought. Any thought you create, you can uncreate. So one of the main themes is like you can't change your past. The only thing you could change is your perspective of your past, the way you look at it. And there's a whole spiritual element to it, which is why I have a picture of a dog meditating. Brilliant. And if, and if I hold it very close to the mic, your listeners can see it probably. <laughs> 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 Did you see that? And I have amazing though. reviews. If you look on the back of the book, I got great reviews from psychiatrists and psychotherapists, people in the field who validate my theories on how to achieve happiness by changing the way you think and getting rid of all the bullshit that, w that is cluttering our minds, all the negativity that we carry with us that is given to us by other people. I had to tell you, man, when you told me about the book, you sent me the link. And I was so excited. Uh, I actually I went out and I have it on Amazon. Really? And uh, I just love the cover. Well, I want a physical It's a great copy. cover. Thank you. Thank you. And the, you know what? I want to read both these books now. So. It's, it's very reaffirming to me that it became a bestseller on Amazon. People are really resonating with it. And they're putting up reviews like it's a life-changing book. People are saying... First of all, I never open myself up. I don't often talk about my own life and how I feel about things. I just, Ron Bennington always kids me about that. He's like, you keep everything to yourself. But in this book, I really opened up and I talked about very personal things, you know. And I gave examples, you know. When I got divorced, it was a very painful thing and because I had two little girls that were my heart. But my ex-wife remarried and had two other children. She adopted two children and had another one of her own. And those two children needed to be adopted, and that little girl needed to be born. And that couldn't have happened had I stayed. And so when you think about your life, sometimes in retrospect, you can see the reasons why certain things happened. And that can give you a sense of peace. So many people go through lives hating their exes. But if you ever had children with somebody, that they couldn't have been those children if it wasn't for that person. So you're That's wasting a great point. You're wasting part of your life if you're hating somebody that you were with for any period of time. If you once you exchange energy on that level, like I never remarried. I've been with a lot of girls, but I've never remarried. <laughs> so there's nobody else that I exchange that level of intimacy with. So to me But he got down and dirty. No, but <laughs> no, but I honor my ex wife as the mother of my children and we're close. You know, I I, I I go to her house with her new husband. Her new husband owns a garage. He's, he's been her husband for a long time. And I and he fixes my car. And right. to show you how much I trust the guy, I use the cables don't work. No, I was going to say, to show you how much I trust the guy, I let him do my brakes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's how much I trust the guy. And that's all because of the principles that are in this book. Wow. That, that if you lead your life according to certain principles, 
that your life becomes easier. You think differently. And that's, it's about letting go of resentment, letting go of anger, just trying to lead your life according to certain principles. And Where can everybody find principles. your books? They can find it on Amazon. Uh, all of my books are on Amazon. But I'd really like it if they started with this, Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind, A Spiritual and Humorous Approach to Achieving Happiness. I'm in. And great. I think that's a great way to go out. Absolutely. And we're going to post the link and the, uh, and the picture of, of of oh, this for when you be, say we mean awesome. you mean you yes because yeah. I can't because you're the producer and you yes. know how to do it yeah. <laughs> you're on to me somebody has to know how to do it I really thank you guys for having me no, on no Jeff thank we you. thank this you what a great, great show this really. was really really nice that was drinks jokes and, and storytelling thank you absolutely buddy that was awesome thank you man tremendous yeah. show yeah. last call <laughs> Thanks for listening to Drinks, Jokes, and Storytelling.